Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Profitable Property Management. Today's guest is Marco Nelson from RentCheck. Great conversation. We went deep on inspections. We talked about the pros and cons of self-inspections versus not, and a little bit about the macro industry of prop tech. It was a great episode. I think you're going to like it. Welcome to the episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla. Today, I'm talking to Marco Nelson from Renshack. Marco, good to have you in the house, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to hear a little bit about your background, what you're up to. We were talking about some notes before the show. Let's start here. What is the genesis story for Renshack? Yeah, it's been a, it's kind of a long genesis, but I'll try to speed it up. Um, did my undergrad at the Naval Academy, and when I graduated, Bought my first property where I was stationed in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and rented it out to classmates. And that was kind of my jump into being a part-time landlord property manager. Um, after that, I got selected to go to the Naval Post Graduate School in Monterey, kept it as a rental, you know, managed it remotely, bought another property up in Oregon where I grew up and turned that into a rental. And kind of as I progressed through my military career, I would buy a property every two years, every duty station I was at, and turn it into a rental um, while in Monterey, I got a master's in IT and became a software engineer uh, and started building mobile apps on the side. Uh, and eventually that kind of led me down the path to think like, how can mobile technology solve some of the issues I started seeing while I was managing these properties remotely? And one of the biggest issues I kind of kept running into was disputes with my residents over deposits. And I would try to combat that by sending people out there to do like full documentation at move in and at move out, but it was costly and kind of like you know, to send somebody there and keep these photos. Uh, and so I thought, hey, camera technology on mobile phones is getting a lot better. I think I could build a way that I could just invite the resident and allow them to document it and agree it at move in. We could do the same at move out and clearly show side-by-side -side photos of what changed, what they're responsible for, and what they're going to lose out of the deposit. And that's kind of how RentCheck started. And then I went to Tulane to do an MBA, was pitching classmates about this idea Hey, you just moved from Boston, New York. Did you lose your deposit? Did you have issues? What would you have done ne next time? Every renter is like, no, I had issues. It was a pain in the butt. I would have taken more photos. And I met my co-founder, Lydia, who was doing her JD MBA. And she's like, I'm in the process of suing my landlord over deposit. I got some stories for you. And so we sat down and, and talked and she essentially represented herself. It took her about a year and a half, but she won in court because of timestamp photos. And that kind of, we kind of argued my perspective as a property manager, how to make things efficient and, and fair, kind of my background from the military and her as a renter, what does a renter care about? They care about being left alone, getting things fixed and getting back their deposit because uh, you know that's important to them when they're moving and there's a lot of costs that are there and most renters don't have a ton of savings. And so we kind of figured out what's the most equitable solution and a way to essentially capture the documentation and property managers are busy and visiting properties over and over again throughout the life cycle is costly. Uh, and so let's build a tool that they can just bring their, pro their their residents on and be on the same page and transparent throughout the entire rental process. So this is the classic example of dog fooding. Dog fooding is always, it's what you look for and you hope for with operators, that they're building something that comes out of firsthand known experience that they've had themselves, that not only they understand, but they actually have some, some emotion wrapped around. In this case, 
the opposing emotion that comes to mind when the subject of um, a renter reporting data, information, capturing photos is the concerns around accuracy. Yep. Can we trust the renters? Is a renter going to report a lease violation, for example? What, let, let's just start there. Walk me through every objection that comes up through the idea of trusting renters to document anything. Yeah, so that's been the number one uphill battle we've had since starting the company is most property managers don't say don't trust the resident to do it. And if you talk to any renter, most renters don't trust their property manager, right? So like this, this is the friction we've been trying to solve with the company is how do we get people build the trust together so that both parties can uh, achieve what they want, right? And so when, you, when it comes to objections, it's like, are the, is it gonna be accurate, right? And so we spent a lot of time building our mobile app. It's not just a digital checklist, like there are some other products out there. It's essentially like a digital checklist that the resident could do. Um, ours is very guided. It's very detailed step-by-step -step camera overlays that tell the resident exactly where to stand, how to take the photo, and it's structured and consistent every single time. So we built it with property managers across the country to say, if you were walking with your resident, how would you be walking through standing them, taking photos, asking specific questions? Uh, so that's number one. We've done that. We built a very structured way so that you're going to get consistent results. And if the, the resident deviates from that, it's going to be very, very, very easy to see that they were trying to hide something so that you know, hey, I need to go get eyes on this property or I need to send a revision request to make sure the resident, you know, captures it properly. So we've, we kind of spent most of our time building that around is how do you get it accurate? And it's all about guidance and structure and consistency so that when people deviate from that, you know where the maybe the trouble residents might be or there might be issues that you need to go get eyes on the property. What's the inspection interval that you see most PMs operating at? Uh, so we talk to PMs and every single PM uh, most likely tell you that if they could, if they had manpower or resources, they would do more inspections than they're currently doing. And, and so most, uh, you know, prop managers we partner with, they're doing a moving inspection. Uh, they're doing maybe an annual inspection and then like a pre move out uh, with us. They're said, well, we would like to get ideal world, we would do a periodic inspection every, at least every six months. Uh, we would do maintenance checks, you know, on certain things, uh, you, you know, every, you know, two months, we do air filter checks in the summer every month. Like there's all these things that they would like to do um, that we, uh, you know, help them do. Most people are maybe seeing a property once a year. Uh, and that's clearly not enough information to kind of make the decisions on preventative maintenance lease renewal information, helping get the, the owner on board to make some renovation updates, uh, you know, those types of things. So most are going from one or two a year to four to five a year, you know, kind of depending on what they're looking for and the type of property. If inspections are fundamentally a cost, there's obviously going to be resistance. Yep. Some PMs have figured out how to make a, a inspections a revenue center. What have you seen in that front? Have you seen any innovation around folks being able to provide optionality for greater frequency of inspections that is not a greater amount of money out of their pocket? Yeah, so so we we drastically reduce their cost to do the inspection, and we're you know pure software, so we're 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 a software fee, and a lot of them because they're doing more inspections and the format's really nice and consistent, they can actually upsell to the owners to say, hey, you know, in our agreement, we're typically going to get eyes on the property once a year, right? Uh, well, we could get even more touch points to, you know, and, but we're going to charge you a little bit more. So they can essentially, a lot of them do turn this into a way to make additional revenue. It depends on the relationship they have with the owners. 
but you know most owners you know as, as well there's a lot of there are trust issues between owners and property managers and the more you're sharing with them and giving them even if it's a, a, a you know a little upcharge they're gonna be more comfortable with that you taking care of the property understanding how that property is and communicating to them what things need to be updated or or maybe on the lookout for as costs in the future what can you say from the perspective of the tenant to the pm advocating for the tenant and the experience of what it's like to have somebody in their home, have their home being inspected. While the PM or the owner may like an increasing volume of inspections as a tenant, do I want people in my house now 12 times a year as opposed to once a year? No, probably not. I'm assuming that this relationship that you have with the tenant is providing you a window and a vantage point into how they feel about it. What would you say to like gain more empathy for the tenant in amidst inspections? Yeah, so so this this leads to the second like biggest, uh, you know, to your question earlier on like pushback from property managers on doing something like this is like, well, is it going to be accurate? Number two is like, are residents actually going to do this? Like, do do they are they really going to do this because they can't get residents to do anything, uh, right? Uh, and the thing is, is like what we tell them is like, if you put your mindset in the mindset of the resident, right? Kind of to your your next question is that like renters they want if they're a good renter. They want to be left alone. They don't want somebody coming through their home. And we have over 7,000 reviews in the app store from residents. And most of them say something like, this is so great. I don't want to have that creepy, uh, you, you know, like uh, inspector come, come, come through my house again. Right. And, you know, so that's one thing. Or I don't want, I didn't have to schedule, take off time from work to be at home or have somebody come through my home when I wasn't there, you know, like those types of things. So like, these residents, and we have the stats like average, you know, inspections sent out, like we're a little over 80% of all inspections that get sent out to residents are completed on time. Uh, and that's across, across the board. And we have some that are close to 100% uh, because renters want to be left alone. Uh, they do want to communicate the things that should be taken care of. Um, and this allows them to do that on their own time, take the time to do it. Uh, and they're happy to do it, uh, you know, because uh, they know that you know, things are going to be taken care of. Hopefully, uh, the only time where we see friction are like lower completion rates. And and this goes to like, is, is more insights to the prop manager is when residents have put in, you know, maybe maintenance things and never get a response, never gets taken care of. And th- that's really the relationship that you should be building with your resident, uh, you know, together. And if you have that kind of built like, hey, we want you to do this on your own time, and maybe a little work on your end to document, but we're going to take care of the things that are either safety hazards or things that are really making you upset or like not enjoying your experience living here. Uh, so that's kind of what we help build and we work with our, our property management companies to understand which residents have had frustrations in the past and you should probably spend more time with them to let them know that like, yeah, maybe in the past you didn't respond to maintenance issues, but now going forward, you, you want to get the insights so that you can plan and like take care of those before they become an emergency. Uh, and that, you know, the resident is your partner there to, to help you understand the property and do that. Is the frequency of self-inspections greater? Uh, um, if you're having the tenant do it, then presumably the yep. the actual timing, you can have them do it more often than you'd have a third party. Do you find that folks using RentTrack are doing a greater frequency of inspections net versus those not? Uh, much higher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because they can do, you, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, a moving inspection is the most lengthy long inspection, right? But they could do, hey, we just want to have a, a quick inspection to just show, take photos of the backyard and the front yard because part of our lease is like maintaining, you, you know, the, the, the yard. And like they could do that every month in the summer. It's just a quick, quick theme, you know, air filter change. Like 
taking care of the HVAC unit, you can send out a one-off inspection every month that just includes take a photo of the dirty air filter, put the clean one in, take a photo of the clean one, right? So there's all the types of inspections that aren't just the big ones that you would traditionally think of. Like our partners are thinking of like, what's all the things that maybe we would send somebody out there to check on the air filter and a bunch of other things. Like we get the resident to do this on their own and we're letting the, the owners know that like we're taking care of the property for you. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it's, we, we've seen probably at least there's at least probably a three to five X number of inspections that our partners are doing with the residents because mm -hmm. they're getting the residents involved. Uh, so they're getting more insights into the property and they're also reducing the amount of inspections that they had to do in person. Cause if the residents, does a great job. They do it on time. You you have the information you need. You can focus your capital on going out and inspecting the properties where there are issues and the residents aren't being compliant or if just having them go do maintenance and, and get maintenance corrected and not spend time doing inspections. Have your team spend time actually correcting the things that's going to make the residents happy, right? Um, so that's kind of what we see in the shift of, of, of those that leverage us. Let's talk a little bit about building software. Can you tell me about early on what the process was like chasing product market fit? Yeah, so so when I started the company, I'm a software engineer, so I built everything myself. It was myself, my co-founder. I said, I'll build this. You go out and you know talk to people and figure out how we how we can uh, you know make money. Uh, and it was the first year and a half was the hardest because you know we were kind of stuck in this in between on. Who, who is our ultimate, like, you, you know, customer? Uh, is it property managers? Is it renters? Like, we kind of sit in the middle. Uh, and we ended up landing on on property managers to, like, who we actually sell to. But we always have held that residents are our customer's customer, right? Uh, and so building a product for two kind of different, because, like, I think most PM softwares were built just for the property manager without the resident involved. And there were some platforms out there that were built just for the resident as kind of resident things. Uh, and we kind of sat in the middle and and it took us a while because I think our first website was like, don't get screwed by your your property manager, use rent check. And it was just geared towards renters, right? And and they were downloading it. And then we noticed that like property managers, landlords were downloading from that same website. And I, we were talking to them. And we're like, well, they're like, well, if renters are going to use this, we want to use this as well. And we're like, man, like from a distribution standpoint, we actually need to build out the backend tools and, and, and the way to use this data so that we can actually sell to the prop managers. They'll distribute us to their renters. And so um, that was probably the most difficult of us, like understanding how we fit and who, and who we were building for, for different pieces, like our, our, our dashboard and the functionality is built to save prop managers time and be efficient. And But the inspection user experience has to be what residents would expect if they were using Airbnb, Uber, like any type of consumer app has to be that quality for them to really want to be part of it and do the things that they're being asked to do. Um, so there's a bunch of iterations in, in between there to finally figure out where we fit in um, and, and get to a point where our software could achieve, you know, you always have an idea and you you sell a dream and then it's like, it's nice when you actually get the software to the place where property managers were happy with us, the residents were happy, uh, and then we started to grow, grow, grow much faster from there, you know, before you're selling the dream and then when you deliver on that, um, from a product standpoint, that that's where it starts to get exciting and you know, like, hey, we can go get as many units as possible now and, and, and get out there and kind of change the way the industry operates. What were some of the initial ahas product-wise? Yeah, the, the, the first aha for us was when we had that, you, you know, the app and just renters were downloading it and we had property managers downloading it and using it on their own. Um, we had an aha of like, I'm going to put a button in here in the app early on that just when the prop manager sets it up, they could either 
do the do the inspection themselves or they can click a button and just request the resident do it. And we started seeing, we, we would just put that in the product and prop managers were clicking on it and sent it out. And the first renters who were invited, I don't know where they are, but poor, poor them, like the experience from a, an app was was so bad that most of them couldn't actually complete the inspection. But the aha moment was that like prop, the intent of the prop manager to say, hey, I actually want to invite the renter and the renter is going to sign up and start doing it. And they'd message us in like, your app's horrible. I can't do this. And like, we're like, renters actually want, they're like trying to do this, you know? And so that was like the first aha of like, oh man, we got to make this experience to match what the intent is for the prop managers and the residents. Um, so that was kind of number one was like the big thing of like, all right, I think we're onto something. This was pre pre COVID, right? 2019, we're like self-showing self, you know, led stuff wasn't, you know, wasn't at where it's much easier now because people couldn't go to properties during COVID. And we, we, we benefited from that. Um, but the mindset, you know, we first started, that was like a whole new concept of like, I'm going to invite the renter to do an inspection. Like nobody's going to trust the renter, like, you know, all the things that, that we still bump up against today. Um, but that was, that was the first one that really said, Hey, this is what we think the future of, uh, of inspections is and the interaction between prop managers and renters, um, and kind of had led us down our path to like double down on that and, you know, not go down the path of just building a property management inspection tool. Um, that's a little bit better than like what's included in Appfolio or, 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 you know, or like embedded because every PM system has an inspection module that's part of it. Right. Uh, we're not just trying to build a better little version of that. We're trying to change the way people operate. Yeah. Change the paradigm of how inspections are thought about and done, um, which takes a lot more effort besides just building a tool. Like there's education that we're trying to get out there and, and, you know, have case studies and a lot of other things that we need, still need to do, but that's what we kind of have focused on as a company. That's what we're doing. You bring up a really great point related to defensibility. If you're yeah. sitting on a specific use case, you're obviously wanting to take advantage of being focused and narrow, and there's yeah. general advantage and moat that can be built there. Yeah. At the same time, you're talking about the PMS, yep. and the traditional tension is the PMS can roll out fundamentally inferior software, yep. trusting and reasonably believing that a decent subset of their customers are going to use it, even if it's inferior. Yep. Why? Because it's already included. It's already baked in. How do you think about the market dynamics and the defensibility of being a point solution, knowing that there's this potential threat from other software that people are already kind of in that ecosystem? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's clearly something as a startup breaking in, you know, there's like five or six major players out there, you know, Appfolio, Yardy, you know, there's like the main players, they all have an inspection module. We go up against this a lot and people have to pay, you know, extra per month, you know, per unit to use our platform instead of what's embedded. And so we have to, we have to really carve out and show like, what's the ROI and and those in, embedded tools, like you can't get the resident involved and you have to go out and send your people. Now, eventually they'll probably build a, a ability to let the resident in, get involved there. But, um, you know, our, our thing has always been like, we have to be 10 times better and we have to build the demand from within. And we, that we've kind of branded as rent check, which like we didn't brand ourselves as inspection, this inspection, that, because we want equity and we we handle all communication with the residents so every email every touch point like we automate all of that it all comes from rent check to the renter the renter downloads our app and if you most renters don't know Appfolio, don't know Yardi, don't know this they do know uh, the renters that use us that get invited know us and a lot of them take us from the property that they were invited to to the next property they move to which is a whole new landlord or prop manager and introduce us to them right so like we're doubly down on that. If we can capture and and kind of 
get this forced on by the residents, then we, you know, we'll be much more defensible, even if Appfolio or one of those platforms rolls out a version uh, that's waste, waste, you know, like the residents aren't going to, aren't going to deal with things mm -hmm. that are not built well. Property managers will because like they're busy and like they're trying to cut costs. But if you want to actually reach the resident uh, and residents have pushed other products on people um, because like they pay the bills. Right. Um, and so that's kind of what we've focused on. Like, let's make the resident experience the best it can possibly be. Let's build equity with them. Let's get them to take our tool with them. Mm -hmm. And if they know it, then like they're going to move in. They're like, we're not going to do this inspection. Like we're used to rent check. This is the best experience and what we expect going forward. And hopefully we'll be able to get there and keep pushing that up as we get more and more, you know, prop management companies and residents on our platform. And I think that that's the way that we build long-term defensibility against kind of one of those platforms, you know, releasing kind of a, a, a very inferior product that does kind of the same functionality or or is trying to solve the same problem, but you know, isn't close to what we're doing. This is a bottoms up approach. This has been more common in SaaS over time. Typically, um, enterprise is a whole different motion in sales cycle. You take a product like Dropbox though, yep. and it starts anywhere in the organization. Eventually it works its way up. It's novel that you're talking about tenants pulling that into additional communities in the future. That kind of makes sense to me. When you think about, um, openness in this industry. You yep. think about APIs, integrations, there's been some progress over the last yep. couple of years. I would argue that that progress has been slow, way too late, way too much friction on the process. Yep. There's unnecessary money being exchanged hands. There's unnecessary constrictions and rules and limitations around the very limited integrations that are available right now. And I view that as being a function of leverage and control. He who has leverage uses it. He who doesn't has to deal with the terms of that are being offered at the table. Yep. What do you see as the future in our industry around the evolution of uh, data integrations, the stuff you would expect in, in 10 other industries? Yep. Where do you see things headed? How do you see that impacting both the PM, the vendors involved, as well as the tenants? Yeah, the, the biggest friction for all property managers and, and even tenants as well is the amount of different tools they have to use that don't communicate with each other. Um, I, I kind of have a, a firm belief that I think there are big players out there you know, that make it very difficult for startups and, and new prop tech companies to integrate and make data flow easy. I think they have a stronghold now. I'm pretty sure that it's just a matter of time before they're replaced. It's it's happening. Like, you know, even even Yardy is an example. Like there's a lot of companies that use Yardy just for accounting and maybe a little bit of leasing and everything else they do for operations, they're using other tools, right? Uh, and and eventually there's, there's going to be people that we have an open API. I'm an engineer. Like we have built our API from the beginning. Like there's more people that are going towards that. I think they should move still. There's some startups that aren't there yet either. Um, I think, you know, I think the, the, there's a good time now where we can collectively as, uh, you know, uh, newer companies in the space, be open, integrate and make it easy where the likelihood of replacing those guys that have the stronghold will eventually happen. I think the only one that's kind of made a pretty good move in the in the the last minute move, I guess, is Appfolio. Like they stood up an integration. They have a pretty good docs and and good API and are and are trying to make it. They still have, you know, some things that I think are you know not fair to 
other operators out there. Um, but you know, they're kind of like the only one that seems like they're trying from the big players. Well, they, like, they beat Propertyware, yeah, uh, who is who is officially last. Otherwise, <laughs> every other vendor has had some version of this. And if we're calling people out, I would actually say that Rent Manager yeah. led with the most robust. Now, people may have feelings about the software itself, but they've had an integration yeah. program for a while. Yeah. Appfolio made it look retail. Appfolio has a big position, and so they've yeah. uh, leaned in. And it's really notable. They should be commended for that. Yeah. But part of what I'm getting at here is that these integrations directly relate to use case enablement. What I mean is, when I think about, when my company thinks about integrating with another software vendor, yeah. The initial thought is, what is it? It's biz dev. We're going to get some customers. It'd be good business. Beyond that is the really is the heart of the matter, which is use case enablement. Yep. This dramatically impacts people's ability to get value from the software. Yep. When you arbitrarily say, well, here's such and such a field, but we don't want to give access to that. We don't want you to have access to this field because we have these strategic considerations, et cetera, yep. that costs end users practical value. It shouldn't be happening. It is. I'm excited to see progress. You highlighted one dimension that I think is related. The idea of people asking their PMS to actually do less rather than more. I just had a great guest on who was actually talking about the idea of his company having a data lake. Yep. If my company had a, a separate data lake, a repo outside of any of these softwares that I could use as my single system of truth, et cetera. Now, is that practical for most PMs? No, but it's illustrative of the overall idea of the PM, the operator having more control over what's going on. The extreme version of that is actually extracting your data and having it somewhere else and stewarding it on your own. I don't know how practical that is. Yeah. The practical ver version that I see is just extreme cooperation, letting the free market do what it does. I agree 100%. I think it's short-sighted to to think that if you let somebody else integrate or have your data that you're going to lose customers. Like I think it should always be how do you create value and how do you solve property managers problems? And if if you want to do everything, then like you're going to go off in a silo and you're going to see kind of it's going to stay the way it's been the last 20 years. I think if everybody now that's newer companies that are pushing the envelope like it's all about use case. Like how do you solve prop managers problems for, for all the use cases? And like, you're not gonna build everything, but like, let's make the data flow easy so you can kick off processes. You can get that data into work order, like whatever it might be. Like that's, that's how we approach things. Um, and it has been an uphill battle because we want to partner with people and like, yeah, they don't want to make it open because they might do something in the future or they think it might, customers might leave them. And it's like, if you're solving their problems, they're not going to leave you. Um, and if you're holding them handcuffed, then like they're going to leave you at some point in the future. Um, and y you know, it's going to happen. So, um, these ties actually make you stronger from my vantage point. The more integrations, yep. the more ties that people have, they're, they're bridged into your system in the first place. Yeah. And the, cause then you can automate things more and like people don't want to get away from automation. Uh, you know, once they have something set up. So like if you can integrate, uh, you can have those ties and you can automate things. Uh, you know, it's like, that's the, the, the better way to approach, you know, thinking through customers and who you partner with. Uh, and I, I think biz dev opportunities that should always come secondary. Uh, you, you know, it's like, is this really going to solve and, and make them operate mm -hmm. more? And, and is it going to save them time? And is it going to make this process easier? Uh, you know, th that's kind of how we try to approach it because it's not about the money. It's about creating the value. The money will always follow you follow if mm. you are mm. really solving problems and, you know, and making things 
10 times better than what, what they're used to with the least amount of friction. So you said it's not about the money, it's about focusing on the value, the money will come. I feel the same way. I feel the same way specifically about how I guide my company. I want to talk a little bit about leadership, a little bit about culture. This has been an evolution for me. Yep. I think early on in my career, I was hoping I was going to read some leadership books and get these brilliant insights and it was just going to work. And really, it's felt more like getting slapped enough times that certain things have just become <laughs> profoundly obvious and high conviction. One of those things for me is prioritizing people, prioritizing our culture and believing that performance will flow out of and be derivative of that. I'm curious for you, how has your leadership at the company evolved and how do you think about leading people right now? Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, we're about 20 people on the team now. Uh, and we kind of in the last, you know, like year went from like eight to 20. Um, and so early on, it's just like, just get, get stuff done. And execute. it's just like, you know, it's very execute, uh, you know, in the last year, you, you know, it's, it's really, uh, I think me and my co-founder have focused more on when you kind of plug people that lead kind of start to lead different portions of the company, you know, my job has been more to kind of sit back and make sure the things that we care about uh, are embedded in the culture before we grow even more, right? And so we've spent a lot of time the last year, it, it, which I think, you know, we're if you look at our reviews or you talk to your customers, like we interact with our customers a lot. We have a lot of customers and, and we interact with them. I'm a product guy and throughout the team, I don't care what how busy you are. If a customer has an issue or wants to chat, like let's chat with them and understand how we can create more value for them. And I think that can, you can get caught up in like, we got to grow faster, more sales, more this, more that. And I think once you kind of find initial, like a product market fit doesn't stay forever. Mm -hmm. There's initial product market fit. Okay. And yeah, and then, and then as you go from different phases of mm -hmm. what type of customers mm -hmm. you're selling to, you got to maintain that, right? And I think that 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 can get lost, uh, you know, sometimes. And so more for me, it's more like, pushing the envelope on what do we really care about, you know, in that standpoint, like we got to stay curious. And then also too, um, you know, is like, that's, that's one kind of core theme. And the other one is, is it, which I think people, when you start getting a lot of customers, then you can start to take the, the direct things that they want and think that's what you need to build. But it's really about taking the time to dig deeper as to like, well, what are you actually trying to achieve? Like how much value is this going to create? Like, here's maybe a way that we could achieve that plus create more value so that you're always building things that are going to be 10 times better, not just like, you know, a, a little bit better. Right. Um, and that takes like rigor and practice to like, for the, those two are the kind of the core things that, that I kind of want to instill as a, if we want to be like a product and a product led company and not just say, Hey, we got this tool and now we're just trying to maintain it to be okay. And we're at incremental things, right? We want to like make it 10 times better in all the different areas we think we can impact. Um, and, and so that I think that you can get lost cause you kind of get in the, the machine of like grow doors, get new customers, keep them happy, expand through them, you know, and, and, and it's like, if the core thing that made us a good company and made us build something that was different, we got to stick to that and stay here. And one of our like core goals is like, stay curious. Like that's like a, mm. a, a core thing we, we push, um, hard to do. Hard to do because like being the constant draw of certainty. Yeah. And, and being curious takes time. And like, you think you have something right. And it's like, we had that right for a little bit, but actually there's a better way to do it now. We need to like push the envelope on actually getting that out. Um, and when a customer says they had a trouble with this, like we got to really understand what, what their, what was the root root problem or what's kind of the, 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 the longer term theme that they're trying to solve for. Not just like, oh, we would love to like have this field change 
because of this. And it's like, okay, we'll just make that. And then you kind of have these kind of patched together things that just make people happy in, in the short term. I mean, there's some things you have to have to do in that regard, but I think uh, staying curious and like really thinking about, okay, well, how do we really make things, you know, the best, best future state um, is something that, you know, you can lose as you, as you start to grow and you get people telling you, we want this, we want that, we want that, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, type, type of thing. So what do you personally get out of entrepreneurship? If there wasn't any money involved. Yeah, for me. And, and I tell this to every employee. I mean, the reason I started a company, I, you know, I was in the military, I'm, I'm a mission driven person. Like I was in the military for a while. Cause I was, you know, I graduated high school in uh, 2002. This is like post nine 11. Right. So I was, uh, you know, I, I wanted to go play college football, which I got recruited to the Naval Academy to do and be an officer in the military. Uh, after that, like I went and worked for Deloitte to kind of like figure out what I wanted to do. And like, I quickly learned that like, you can't pay me, you can't pay me enough money to spend hours. And, and this is at the same time when I had my first, my first child, my daughter, um, I was like, you can't pay me enough money to work on things that I'm not passionate about. And I think are creating value and working with people that I don't enjoy. And so that, and so I kind of like left that and spent some years doing other things until I started rent check. And like, that's always been the core. And I tell everybody on the team, like I'm a builder and we want to build and create value. And this is an area that we think we want to change in the world. Um, this friction between prop managers and residents, uh, you know, and like, I just want to build and like, as long as we're building. So like, as long as I'm building something, I think is adding value to the world and to people that I think is solving problems. That's what like, that's number one that drives me. And number two is like, I get to work with wonderful people that are curious and like, are trying to do the same thing. And like, when you're part of a mission and people doing that, uh, that's great. Like I wake up every day, like there's not the weekend, the weekend first of the week is just like how much time I spend with my family and my kids. Uh, I try to spend a lot more on the weekend and during the week, you know, I spend more time, you know, working on rent check and with the people that I work with, but you know, our, our goal at rent check and like is people should be excited for the weekend and they should be just excited for Monday when they're coming back to work at rent check. And as long as we can try to maintain that because people are, are, are passionate about what we're building, passionate about the problems we're solving, that's, that's really kind of the, the joy that I get out of it. Hopefully money will come and all a bunch of other things, but I think, you know, uh, living that way, you know, is, is much more fulfilling and, and, and as, as a wonderful thing to kind of, uh, be able to experience. It certainly is a hell of a ride. How do you manage the manicness that can come with it? That founder compulsive energy that makes you great, but can also leave a smoking hole of a crater in your <laughs> personal life. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough. Uh, you, you know, that's been, that's been like an ongoing, obviously like the first, you know, two years of the company, you're just grinding it out and like, if you're not doing the work, nothing's getting done, uh, right? Um, so I think that was, you know, you definitely could ask my wife and um, our kids were much younger then and, and, and she could probably say that she was fairly frustrated with me, uh, you know, through that period. And then kind of as you grow, um, you, you know, it, it, I think it takes, a, a, you know, a lot more reflection on what's the most important. You know, you can get caught up in as a startup raising capital and this and that and mm -hmm. making money. And, and like at the end of the day, like I go back, I have some notes. It's like, what's the most important to you? Like my family is number one. I, I told my co-founder this, you know, she's, you know, um, you know, when we started, I said, Hey, like, we're going to go do this and, and blow this out. But I want to let you know that like selling a company or, or building the biggest company does not define success for me. Success is if I, if I like I've divorced and my kids don't know who I am, uh, you know, like there's a balance that I is just part of me. Uh, and so I try to reflect back to that and I've gotten better 
you, you know, in the last probably two years of balancing it, uh, you know, with just kind of how I structure my day, you know, evenings, I try to just spend time with my wife and kids and on the weekend. And as soon as I wake up, I wake up as early as I can and go to the office. I'm just one of those types of people. But when I'm done, I try to like, you know, switch, switch gears to like, Hey, this is, this is family time. I want to be engaged, you know, especially now my kids are nine and six and this is like the golden years I get to spend with them. Mm. Um, but, it, but it's hard, especially with the ups and downs, the markets, you know, the external things that have changed the last three years, you know, trying, trying to find product market fit and build a company is hard in itself. And then all the external things that you have to manage from like employee management, raising capital, like, you, you know, COVID capital markets changing, like all of that is just like, mm outside things that you have to out of your control but you have to figure out how to weave in you, you know without getting stressed out stressing out your family you know like not not being present you know all, all those types of things so it's been tough i don't i don't know it's it's a constant struggle yeah there's always going to be outside circumstances that definitely have impact and i feel that as well you did man, uh, mention fundraising. I think that actually is an interesting intersection yep i enjoy this topic exposing my audience to this topic but because my journey is something that I'm sharing. It's what I have to offer, my journey. And some of that includes paying attention to and tuning into what's going on with the capital markets, the funding sources and the funding paradigm. It, it directly impacts the type of businesses that come into this space. So let's talk a little bit about funding. What I've seen is that the venture market in general has taken a beating over the last 18 months or so. Things are down significantly. We're seeing things unwind where companies are dealing with the consequences of raising at what now appears to be inflated rates. They're going back to re-raise and either they can't get access to capital, they're dealing with the consequences of down rounds, et cetera. What are you seeing playing out? Given that you funding, you have peers in this space, you're yep. talking to people, what are you seeing? Yeah, that, that's that's generally accurate. I think, yeah, started about 18 months ago, uh, you know, started started going down pretty drastically. And, and I think it seems like earlier this year, was maybe the bottom of like the adjustment and things are now starting to say, okay, how do we adjust to this new environment? Um, you, you know, I think, you know, from a, a, a capital standpoint, you know, as a, as a founder, you're always trying to, you know, you raise capital so that you can get ahead of yourself to build the things that you, you think the future needs, but you always got to catch up to those, you know, to, to where you need to be before you can take on more capital or your company's in a bad position. Um, and so I think companies that raised, too much money at too high of a valuation and, and didn't have a, an actual product that, that deliver true ROI, um, you know, or, or, or in a bad position. I think we kind of didn't get too crazy or too far ahead of ourselves. And uh, fortunately for us, like we're focused on value creation and solving operators problems. And I think now kind of coincide with that 18 months, the operators on the property management side, you know, they're trying to tighten up their operations because prior to that, they were doing a lot of, let's just throw bodies at it because they had a lot of money as well, right? Profitability uh, is cool again. Yeah, probably, you know, they have a lot of money. So like now it's it's different. So I think I think with that, like if you're if you're a, a strong company and, and you deliver real ROI, you're going to continue to grow through this. Um, I, I think there still is going to be another, you know, probably the next six months of either of those companies that are, are going to shut down and, and or do you know, massive down rounds or even layoffs like Appfolio just laid off, I think, a, 10%. Yeah, a, a good chunk. So it's like across the board, um, you, you know, so I think the longer you can hold out to raise capital, which is our position right now, hey, we're, we're growing, we're, we're, we're building, let's let's kind of do that. There's obviously a lot of growth opportunities 
that as a founder you want to go attack and do, but you need to be conscious of like when you do that. It's all about it's all about timing in the market. The market's always kind of going up and down, and you're and you're trying to time you know when you take on capital and when you kind of get very aggressive versus when you make sure your business is tight. Uh, and I think as a startup you have to do that. I think a lot of people think you can just stay you know way ahead of your skis for too long, and that's going to lead to a wipeout. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see, I think the next six months, it'll probably, that'll happen. And I think probably in, in next year, at least kind of what I'm hearing, it seems like things could start to pick up a little bit and, and kind of be in a better, better position from a capital. And, and I'm, I'm mainly talking about like, you know, our, our next capital round would probably be like, be a series A. So I'm kind of talking about like, you know, seed series A, you know, B rounds is kind of, those are mostly the kind of peers of mine and, and investors that, that we communicate with. Can you explain to our audience that doesn't know what is the impact of the practical impact of raising an overinflated valuation? What what why would that negatively impact the company, and why is that so attractive to do in the moment if it can have negative consequences later on? Uh, yeah, so in the moment, you know, as as founders, it, it, when you take when you go on the path of taking on venture capital, um, you're set down a different course than if you're like, hey, we're just going to build a company and cash flow, gr- grow, yeah, cash flow and grow off profits, right? You're on you're on a path where uh, the investors they mainly care about getting you to the next stage of raising more capital so that they can move you along the p- pipeline to either IPO or get acquired for for you know a, a substantial return right so when you go down that path and then as founders you got to give up every time you raise capital you have to give up equity of of your company right so you're losing so as you give up equity. Your investors want the valuation of the company to be higher. As a founder, you want the valuation to be higher because you, you know you, you want to. Your equity goes down. You want the company to be worth more value. Um, and so, when times are really, really good, and investors want to get in on companies and deploy capital, the, the, the fight becomes: well, let's optimize for valuation because it just feels great, even though it's not. It, it's just on paper. Want to be a unicorn, baby? Yeah, I want to be a unicorn, and 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 you know th- those types of things. Uh, and so it's it's it you know it's. It's not good at the moment, but it's just something that happens because, like, if if you're if if you're a founder and you're talking to some investors and they're like, yeah, we're gonna give you ten million bucks and uh, we're gonna value at fifty million, and then the next investor is like, well, I'll give you ten million bucks at sixty million, and it's like, well, you know, like, all right, and the next one comes in, well, actually, I'll give you ten at seventy million, you know, and so it, it's 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 hard to say no. I think that's too aggressive. Like most founders aren't gonna do that. Right, even though they're getting on the hook for living up to those, yeah, even though they're getting on the hook, but like that, that's kind of hard. You'll be like, oh, we'll figure that out in the future, right? Uh, and mo- and most most uh, you know founders by by nature are optimistic, very optimistic, right? Because the odds are stacked against you, and it's difficult, but like are optimistic. Um, so I think it's an easy trap to, to. So it's not just the founders' fault. Uh, you know, there's there's a mix between the venture capitalists and the founders that are at fault when they do that. Like there's it's clearly deals that were done that. The valuations were so crazy that like nobody should have done done the deal. It doesn't matter, you know how good the environment is. Um, so the thing is, is like that money is only when it's deployed to the founder. And even as a founder, when you take on capital, like you're like I'm taking a certain amount of money, and I know I need to get to these achievable milestones, which which creates more value for my company. To know the next time I need to, to take on capital, um, I'm worth this much more. Or I'm in a position where like there I could be acquired for this much, and I know that like the returns there, right? So that's always how you try to stack it, um, and 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 it's usually aggressive. It's usually like 18 to 24 months. Like you need to 
spend this money and the, the pressure is on to spend that money to grow and to hit that triple triple double yeah double. yeah hit, hit that thing right and like you know nothing ever goes perfect and so um you, you know and, and then when you get in a position where it is like now the only way to write that is to lay off people get your burn down and give yourself time to grow or you need to take on more capital in in the short term which is going to screw, screw up your valuation and all the stock that you know employees had pretty much goes to nothing right so so there's you know those that did join the company that did want you know some equity you know there's like implications there as to like hey this is not you know not not a good environment and then people start leaving the company because you know they're like well this is worth nothing so uh, and what, just mechanically to be specific what yep. you're getting out there is that issues are optioned uh, issues are optioned with the strike price yep and if the previous valuation was inflated, yep. what that means is that that strike price was too high. Come to find out, actual valuation was much lower. Yep. So now I'm spending the next three years to get back to the strike price, the previous one. Yep. Motivation, yep. possibility or likelihood of actually executing the options goes out the window. Yes. Yeah. So it's so it's very hard. I mean, it's a hard move. I don't. It's I don't know if a lot of companies are able to 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 make that shift, especially with how high valuations were you know, compared to what they've come to in the expectations of how people needed to grow, uh, specifically in the prop tech industry. I think there's a lot of companies that, you know, are going to be affected by that um, just because, you know, the way prop tech kind of industry has kind of trended. Um, so um, we're in a good position. Fortunately, we didn't, you know, we, we, we didn't make any bad mistakes, um, but but it is a tough environment out there, I think, in general. But all hope is not lost. If nope. there's one thing we know about SaaS, it's this, it's compounds. Yep. And the only answer is staying in the freaking game. Uh, that's that's part of it. Yeah. Stay, don't don't die. Stay in the game. And you know, there's ups and downs. And capital markets come back inevitably. Yeah. yeah. There's times to be aggressive. Time to you know work. And I think it's the same. You know, this this is the same with property management companies. You know, we're starting to work with the big enterprise customers now. And, you know, they were throwing bodies at it, acquiring units as quick as possible. Slow down. But, and now they slow down and they're, they're trying to look at their operations. How do we tighten up our operations? Mm -hmm. How do we get our margins better so that we're really good operators? So then the next time the, the money is super cheap and we're deploying it, we're, you know, in a good in a good position. So, um, you know, so I think it's the same. It's just kind of a different different thing. And, uh, you know, for prop managers, but there is some kind of parallels there that that I, I think we see with, with with those that we interact with. So. It's interesting watching how capital impacts markets and companies growing. My observation is that in moments of high growth and mania, it can feel like that the capital itself and a series of growth tactics is somehow the thing that makes the magic, as opposed to underlying fundamental user-facing value. When the tide goes out, we see who is skinny dipping yep. and who is actually able to have durable, sustainable value that they can really have as a real moat. I'm excited to be in this space I feel like this is a golden era in some ways. Of course, what's the Japanese metaphor? Uh, best time to build a tree was 30 years ago. Second best time is now. Yeah, it would have been great to be in in the area uh, here in 2000 when yeah. you know there was nothing. But I see this convergence happening right now that gives me a lot of hope and optimism. And PropTap coming in, even with all the problems associated with certain funding sources, at the end of the day, consumers are benefiting from choice. I have absolute confidence about that. So yeah. I'm glad to be in, in the industry with you on this same journey. And I think there's a lot of possibility here. I appreciate you coming on and sharing your journey. Yeah. Thanks for chatting. Enjoyed it. Peace. 
That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can check out other episodes along the way. If you're watching this on YouTube, appreciate to subscribe. Any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, we'd really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.